there's a statement, uh, something from Yoshal Ken Rinpoche, that I often use to preface what I'm talking about tonight. And he says that there are two purposes to this Dharma practice that we do. One is to discover the nature of the non-deluded mind, the non-deluded heart, as well as learning how the deluded mind works. Both of those are what's going on in our practice here. We've been exploring and speaking about both, and I'll talk about, but hopefully you already realize how um, awareness recognizes the wisdom mind goes back and forth between these two modes. Sometimes, maybe a lot of time. I'm not saying it's equal back and forth. Maybe a lot of time recognizing how the deluded mind works, but equally recognizing the nature of the non-deluded mind. And the steady awareness with wise attitude, right view, are equal support, the tool, the avenue for clear seeing and wisdom in both cases. But sometimes, sometimes the uh, skillful means could be a little bit different depending on kind of which modality is going on, you could say. And that could be one of the reasons why sometimes, you know, people say it seems a little, no, it's, they know it's really not, but a little confusing, or a little like sometimes you say this, sometimes you say the other, and it seems like we're doing, you know, two things at once, or neither one, <laughs> neither one. <laughs> so anyway, the nature of the non-deluded mind. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha talking about the third noble truth, the, the ending of dukkha. I just like this translation. It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving. It's forsaking and abandonment, liberation and detachment from it, the extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called nibbana. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done. Nothing more remains to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, neither the desired nor the undesired can cause such a one to waver. One is steadfast in mind, in heart one who has considered all the contrasts of this earth and is no more disturbed by anything whatever in the world. The peaceful one, freed from rage, from sorrow, and from longing, has passed beyond birth and decay. That unshakable deliverance of the heart, that indeed is the object of the holy life, that is its essence. I just think it's so wonderful that we should like repeat that to ourselves every day. Not as a wanting or a goal orientation, but a reminder. And not as some distant state, because I know that that's said in a lot of superlatives, you know, the complete extinction of all these things but how I want to talk about it tonight and how we explore and recognize in our practice day-to-day, on or off retreat, recognizing that 
the, as I think I read this from Andy Olinsky before, recognizing that the chitta, the mind, the heart, is not a steady state. It's not a thing, a subject, that has objects as content. So it's an activity, the process of cognizing, a flow of events, and as such, as everything, it is changing, and even it is not the right word to use because that makes it a thing, but this flow of activities is changing from moment to moment. This is, of course, how it is, and this is the only thing that makes, makes practice, that makes uh, liberation possible. And so thinking of it this way, it's not that the ending of craving is only some distant state, but there are many, many moments of heart, mind, of with a, that recognized with awareness, when there isn't greed, hatred, delusion arising in that moment of citta. As even, even Sayada Upandita <laughs> says, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. And so if we, you know, if we like get afraid of that if we if we hear or think about or contemplate what I just read or this this potential of freedom of heart, or afraid that's gonna put us into some goal-oriented clinging mind, so better not to think about it, really doing ourselves a misservice. That's delusion, but really recognizing, as I think I also quoted from Ajahn Buddhadasa, that nibbana or freedom of mind is a natural condition. The cool state of heart and mind without any kalesa, without any torments, and this is a natural condition arising in all of us many times a day, often unnoticed because it's just kind of cooled out. There's no big greed or fancy object to get entranced by or try to get rid of. So the it's a natural condition that arises, as I think I said before, he says, without, without moments of this coolness, of this moments when there's not torments, kalesa, you know, identified with in the mind, we would die. We just couldn't live like that. And so that means in any moment, as awareness is steady, and this is a, one of the wonderful things about steady awareness, these these moments of, you could say, purity of heart and mind, coolness, however you want to call it, mind of non-clinging, you know, this is the deathless, namely the liberation of mind through non-clinging. As Buddhadasa says, nibbana for everyone. It's a natural condition. So we, through the steady awareness, we start to see more and more moments of this. Do we even let it in? Can we let it in? Do we even notice it? Because yes, a great deal of the awareness of our practice is more involved in recognizing the suffering aspect of the torments, of the kalesa. Hopefully recognizing the suffering aspect. That's when there's wisdom in the mind. When there's not wisdom in the awareness, we're just in them, thinking this is really going to do it for me. But to start to see the power of the kalesa. Once the Brahmin, Janusoni, approached the Blessed One and said to him, it is said, Master Gotama, 
Nibbana is directly visible. In what way, Master Gotama, is Nibbana directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, worthy of application, to be personally experienced by the wise? And he answers, when Brahman, a person is impassioned with greed, with lust, when a person, and by person just means that moment of mind, okay? It's not like I'm a person who's impassioned with lust and that's who I am from now on, right? Just don't go there. A moment. When the mind of a person is depraved through hatred, bewildered through delusion, overwhelmed and infatuated by delusion, he, he gives that one a little extra oath, then they plan for their own harm, for the harm of others, the harm of both. Basically, he says, when, when there's lust, hatred, and delusion, one cannot recognize one's own good or the good of another or the good of both. You just can't recognize what's true and what's helpful and what's good when the mind is clouded with these things. But when lust, hatred, and delusion have been abandoned, then, Brahman, one does not experience in their mind suffering and grief nor plan for the harm of oneself or others. In this way, Nibbana is directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see. So for us here to, to, you know, really continue to explore, because this isn't new information for any of you, continue to trust in the steadiness of the mindful mindfulness, the awareness with right attitude, but recognizing sometimes it's really seeing, recognizing, feeling, getting familiar with, trusting this coolness, this purity. Other times, much more involved in um, reacting to, or hopefully if there's wisdom, seeing how the torments obscure the truth, the way things really are. But recognizing that the two, two modalities, I mean, they both have to be here. They support each other. And in fact, um, without some, some knowing, even if we don't know, we know it, some experience or some intuition of this pure, cool quality of heart-mind that's unobscured, we wouldn't practice at all. It's like we know it. You know that famous, this is very famous, quotation from the Buddha, but it speaks to this. The one that starts, luminous is this mind, luminous is this chitta, brightly shining, but it is, it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind, cultivation of the heart. So that's what we're all doing here. There wouldn't be cultivation. You wouldn't be sitting here all these months and years if there wasn't, you know, the knowing somewhere in there, the touching somehow whether we, I mean, many of you, we really know it, but sometimes we, we lose the trust that we know it. But it's there, this, this, this 
nibbana for everyone, the coolness of the heart, the mind that is free from greed, hatred, delusion, that touching, whether you call it radiance or just purity or just coolness, that freedom from suffering, that steadfast, that heart-mind that just for a moment isn't bothered by whatever's occurring. And so our practice can have these two aspects, you know, recognizing the moments of clinging or hours of clinging, of the aversion, of the confusion, and at times really caught, but then suddenly there's the wisdom, the recognition, and then noticing the absence, the dissolution, the cessation of that moment or hour of clinging, whatever. And really with a steady awareness, being present, with that cessation, with those moments of coolness, really observing, and then with the steady state, well, you'll bound to notice, awareness is bound to pick up when the obscuring calaces arise again. Usually all too soon. Whenever it is, it's too soon. But, and this is really how it works. But for many of us, as we go on and on, and can taste at the times, say those moments of freedom, the times when you're just tuned into it, it's no big deal, but it's just so obvious that that's the way things are, right? In those moments of wisdom, the, the clinging really doesn't make sense. It's so obvious that it's based on delusion and suffering, right? And then it comes back again. You know, and many, many people have described, you can feel the sense of the mind's about to start clinging. You know, you can tell it's just changing a little bit in there and everyone goes, no, no, get away, get away, get away, <laughs> right, get back. <laughs> and then it's, it's already over by then, but still, you know, we can see the mind doing that. This is how it works. And in some ways, I, this is my opinion, not only my opinion, but it is my opinion. <laughs> um, could look at all aspects of the Buddha's teachings and all the aspects of our practice are, are really about simply purifying, shifting these habits that arise in the heart-mind. It's just this nature, it's just habits. That, that, that greed arises so much, that aversion arises so much, isn't because it's an act of will, it's just the habit of how the mind's been working, how it's been responding, and in moments of um, kind of not really much attention, that's what comes up. But everything in practice is shifting those habits. You could say purifying, but just really shifting it from taking refuge in the greed, the hatred, the confusion, to this real trust of the coolness, the purity. And I just want to say the, the moment, every moment of this awareness with wise attitude, just meeting what's occurring without you know, getting involved in pushing away or identifying, just meeting it, that is actually a moment of shifting the habit. Even awareness of greed, and the greed is really there, but there's moments of awareness back and forth. The awareness isn't greedy. The awareness isn't aversive. And that's a very different moment of response 
than the usual. And because we're so tuned into awareness is getting more and more steady, but it's nothing special, you know, it's just really kind of, many people are saying and noticing it's just more, more ordinary. It's easy not to recognize that this is actually this quality, this kind of, this purity, this simplicity, this non-involvement in Kalesa that's going on. So the skillful means, whether it's working, the awareness is really kind of caught up in a lot of Kalesa, or whether it's more steady awareness and there's more moments of coolness. Sometimes the Buddha gives a little bit different um, instructions, sort of we have as well. I just want to read a little bit from this one sutta. This is uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya. You translate it usually as two, two types of thinking. And this, it's a long sutta. It has lots, it has lots of little nuggets in it that we quote all the time, but I'm only, only going to do a particular one this time. But it's the sutta where he's talking about before he was, became a Buddha, when he was doing his practice, and he noticed two types of thinking. So one unwholesome type and the other wholesome. The unwholesome would be thinking with, guess what, right? Greed and um, cruelty and hatred. Not delusion, delusion's part of all of it. And then the wholesome is, of course, the opposite of those. And so he was just noticing in his mind that, that the, the difficult states would come up and what it would be like if he kept thinking about those, it led to suffering and tiring. The wholesome states would come up. And if he kept thinking about those, he couldn't see any problem that would come from it. Except if he thought about it for a day and a night, no problem would come except his body might get tired. He's very practical. <laughs> so that's what he's talking about. So there's two different ways. So he says, when I noticed that the unwholesome led to my own affliction, so when awareness noticed that, wisdom notices, oh, this is causing suffering. Because of the wisdom, that type of thinking subsided. But he was watching carefully. So and I noticed that it leads to the affliction of others, the affliction of both that it obstructs clear seeing and wisdom, it promotes vexation, it subsided. So the steady awareness allows the wisdom to arrive that lets it subside, but this is kind of the, um, the skillful means he mentions. Just as in the last month of the, rains, of the rains, in the autumn season, when the crops are ripening, so this is all very, you know, all kinds of, he always gives all these agricultural um, metaphors, a cow herd would look after his cows. And he'd be looking very carefully. He would tap and poke them, make them move this way, make them that way. He's looking at them very carefully. Why? Because he's trying to keep them from wandering into the crops. Because he knows if they wander into the crops, they'll cause destruction for the crops. And not only that, he'd get in trouble. Fine or public censure. So it comes from that. So. I foresaw an unskillful qualities, drawbacks, degradation. And so he was being very careful. So he's saying here, we're careful with the awareness. Not, he's not saying, you know, kill the cow so it doesn't get into the crops, but watching carefully. And this is really what kind of, what we, we've talked about when we're, when we're um, saying, just be with steady awareness, notice whatever occurs, don't get, don't get involved, don't do anything, there's no doing. 
But then, you know, we'll say, but when you recognize, you know, that the mind is really caught up in the kalesa and the more awareness that's given to it, the stronger the, in the kalesa is getting because it's really stronger than the awareness and we give all kinds of, you know, avert the attention to something neutral, brighten the mind, do something else. And it's like being really careful. It's not running away from it, but it's not like, okay, whatever happens. We're not saying whatever happens, just follow it. We're saying with, with wisdom and awareness, when there's wisdom in the mind, there's no need. But when there's the kalesa is stronger, that just kind of gives us a little clue. Oh, that's going on. You don't hate it, but it means let's just have a little care in the attention. Right. But then he talks about when the wholesome are in his mind. And he said, I notice when thinking imbued with harmlessness, for example, has arisen, it leads neither to my own affliction nor the affliction of others or the affliction of both. It promotes wisdom, lack of vexation. It leads to freedom. If I were to think and ponder in line with that for a night and a day, I do not envision any danger that would come from it, except, as I said, it would tire the body. When the body is tired, the mind is disturbed. And a disturbed mind is far from collectedness. So he studied his mind. So he's just, this is all just very practical. So this is the, then, this is the simile he gives for that. When there's wisdom, when there's wholesomeness, and the steady awareness sees that there's wholesomeness, then there really isn't anything you need to do. He said, then it is in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been gathered into the village, a cowherd would look after his cows in this way, while resting under the shade of a tree or out in the open, he simply keeps himself mindful of those cows. In the same way, I simply kept myself mindful of those mental qualities. Do you get a sense of that? And that's really a lot where we say just, oh yeah, awareness noticing what's arising. Kind of like imagine yourself just lying under the shade of a tree, watching the cows go by, watching the mental states, the thoughts come and go, and you can see they're wholesome and there's no need to get in there and do anything. And when it's like that, we'll notice when all of a sudden, boom, something comes flying up. And that's not a problem. So we start to see how the kalesas obstruct, how they do their job to get in the way of of just recognizing this simplicity, this coolness of heart-mind. Ajahn Sumedho, in speaking about the third noble truth, the cessation of clinging, in that way, he's talking about that way. He says, a normal person doesn't notice the cessation of clinging or the cessation of most objects. Our attention tends to be too flighty, too jumpy. You know what I'm saying? We're not, not really, uh, can't really take boredom. We can't really take just a moment of nothing. And you, we all know this, right? Jumps into the next thing. And it's really kind of, you know, these last years with, with the whole social media and phones and this immediate gratification, it's, it's really, I, I find it personally, and I'm not the most tech-savvy person, although I'm not that bad. Bryony was really amazed the other day that I knew how to text. I mean, come on. <laughs> I was like, that was a little... 
<laughs> Audrey goes, what do you mean? She texts all the time. But anyway, just noticing. So, so you know, you see kids, it's a, a million times worse. But I just notice in my mind, I'll just be sitting having a cup of tea, which I enjoy my cup of tea. It's like the nice point of the morning. And I can see, like in a minute, a minute, my mind's going, let me just check, you know, the phone's there. Let me check this. Let me check, let me check the weather. <laughs> the weather, let me check the weather. What's the weather going to be tomorrow? <laughs> I already checked it last night. What's it going to be tomorrow? But let me, I forgot, you know, or just something. And I can feel just that flighty, just that restlessness, just that subtle wanting of what? It's nothing really anything because the actual checking and looking at whatever it is, that keep awareness going. I notice the mind kind of gets a little bit tighter. Everything gets a little bit more constricted. Remember the maker of measurement, where it's really just kind of peaceful and open the minute before. But as, as uh, Sumedho was saying, you know, normal person, the mind's a little bit flighty. It doesn't really recognize. But as we are cultivating our steady attention, we do start to recognize, this is Sumedho still, that what arises ceases. We start to see, as Andrea was speaking about the other night, that everything's conditions, all the qualities that come and go in the mind are constructed phenomena. And as there's a steady, we can see them arise, and this is still Sumedha, arise and cease in consciousness. And with a steady awareness, seeing this again and again and again, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. And we start to get, we, or wisdom, starts to get a little bit disenchanted with all this endless arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. It's going to keep on arising and ceasing. It's not, disenchantment doesn't mean, it's often translated in anibida in words like disgust or revulsion or something that has an edge of aversion. That's, I, not, I think, neither accurate nor helpful. But the disenchanted, Tantment, I think, is a better word because, because the habit of Kalesa is enchanted with the object, with the reaction of wanting or just the restlessness or give me something, you know, not to feel this subtle, unpleasant restlessness. We're enchanted with that. And the steady awareness, we start to really see how this works. So the sense of purifying the habits of the Kalesa, seeing how, as that quotation I read from the, the, about the luminous mind, how they obscure the purity, just this simplicity of ease. This is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. What then is meant by pure perception? The way we usually experience the outer world, our bodies and our feelings is impure in the sense that we perceive them as ordinary, substantially existing entities. From this erroneous perception come the negative emotions which perpetuate suffering. However, take a closer look at all these appearances. No, I don't mean peer. We're taking a closer look. Just the steady awareness takes a closer look. And you'll find that they have no true self-existence. From a relative point of view, they appear as a result of various causes and conditions. That's what we were just saying, the conditionality. Like a mirage or a dream, 
But in reality, nothing that arises from causes and conditions has any true self-existence whatsoever. In fact, there is not even anything to appear. I'd love to get up into this real radical. As it is said, one who realizes this emptiness of the self-existence of anything is the true sage. Remember, moment to moment. Not that it has to be all or nothing. That's when it can get discouraging. But recognizing in moments, this is the way things are. And for all of us, all of us, to really get interested. You know, we don't create awareness, we recognize it. And so just the steady awareness with wise attitude is shifting the habits, as I said. So in terms of the carefulness when it's in the middle of the rainy season and the cows, you don't want them to get into the crops, when there's calaces going on and they're just all too familiar and comfortable, and there's enough wisdom, there's enough awareness wisdom to recognize that that's going on. And we all know that, you know, and you'll be caught in it and then out of it, caught in it and then out of it. But what we start to really see I don't know. To me, this to me this helps me. I don't know if it's discouraging to you, but it helps me. That and we start to recognize and continue to recognize to respect the power of the habits of conditioning, of of craving, and craving can be like the wanting or the aversion of this sense of identity of identification with things. And a lot of you have been mentioning. In, in, uh, in the groups, in the interviews, as the awareness is getting more steady. And uh, experience is, you know, you've been here like a while, is getting a little bit more subtle. And people are seeing you know, different habits, really more subtle habits of mind, of self-judgment, of wanting, of fear, whatever it might be. And then they say, oh, I recognize this from my life, but this is much more subtle, you know? and seeing it and all these little things. And I think this is really great because this is starting to see when the, the big, I mean, in the beginning of practice, the, the big fears and aversions and greeds, they take us over and they're really hard to be with. You know, it just seems they're so strong. But as practice goes on and we notice those more, you start to see, and this is what I really have so much respect for, but it makes me interested. It's these subtle habits that are almost below the level of consciousness that are running the show when we're not aware of them, when there's not awareness. Like I think Tara Bennett-Goldman gave the example of how the, the habits under the level of, of consciousness, say when you're driving and you're changing lanes on the freeway, there's so many little things that go on in consciousness and perception and thinking and value and judgment, and you're not naming each one. You're probably not even thinking about it. But there's so much that's happening, kind of under the level of, of consciousness doing that. You're, you know, 60 miles an hour and there's five lanes and you're doing all this stuff. It's kind of amazing if you tried to think about all of it, you know, while you're doing it, you'd probably have a wreck. I mean, I would, I know, because it's too much. So it's like that, that, the habits are under there. And so you can see, I mean, a simple example, you're sitting and there's a pain in your knee 
And you think, well, I'm just going to be with it, and the next thing you know, you've moved. And not that this right or wrong to move, but it's more the sense of conscious mind is saying, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to move from aversion. I'm just going to be here, and the next thing you know. I remember one time I was sitting on a long retreat in, in my room over at the retreat center. And um, so just doing my own thing, not the schedule. I was sitting in a chair. I mean, I was really in there. I wasn't just like, you know, thinking about something. I was really in there, noting, noting, noting mindful. And all of a sudden, I was at the door with my hand on the knob, thinking about cake. <laughs> and it was like, woke me up so much. Because <laughs> it's like, how did that happen, you know? And it's just, you know, under, <laughs> under the level. So it's great when we're seeing it here, respect that, because this is, you know, what happens in our daily life, doesn't it? When we're really, you know, you go, you go home or, or to your partner, there's something, some issue that's really hard. You know, I used to go home to visit my parents, and you think, well, I'm, I'm really not going to get sucked into the dynamic this time. Have you ever tried that one? No, I'm going to go and just be filled with metta. And, you know, <laughs> you mean it. It's a sincere, conscious intention in that moment. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't string it over. And the, the, the uh, unconscious is so subtle and so quick. So you walk in and the, per, the, you know, the mother, the father says one thing and it's off to the races. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But this is just how it is. So we still, it's not any different. We keep on trusting the steady awareness in these situations at home or, and I'll talk more about that next week, but here is the same thing, really seeing how it works. But understanding, this is called like the latent tendencies for uh, loba, dosa, greed and hatred to arise, the kind of, not the really gross ones, but given the particular set of conditions, one of which would be just not quite awareness of that level of subtlety, that that habit will arise, just kind of latent. That doesn't mean no matter what happens, that's going to arise, because then there would be no point in practice. But it's understanding why. Why, when I thought I was really aware, suddenly there's greed, and I'm at the door thinking about cake, and that's like a tenth of a second. Not to, not to get in a whole, oh, no, I'm bad, I wasn't mindful. It's like, wow, isn't that interesting? Look at that. But in the moment of awareness, with my hand on the door, and oh, look at that, awareness, wisdom, noticing it, that awareness, wisdom, didn't feed the greed. And it wasn't aversion. Aversion also feeds the same kalesa. It was just, oh, look at that. So right away... With the steady awareness, the wisdom is there. It's not that we need to fear it. In the seeing of it, even that a moment of greed coming out of you know, latent tendencies and mindlessness, that becomes the catalyst for wisdom, for clear seeing, for a moment of coolness, non-clinging. It's not like to experience the, the, the peace the coolness of the heart-mind that's free from kalesa, it doesn't mean the externals have to be so beautiful and nice and only nice things are coming up in your mind and body. It doesn't at all. We see the drawbacks of the kalesa, but that doesn't mean that 
the conditions have to be perfect. In fact, I personally find, and and see, people have mentioned this too, that often it's in the more difficult times that the, especially now that we've been practicing a lot, everybody here, that in the difficult times it can kind of wake us up to say, oh, okay, this is the place to really take refuge in awareness. As Ajahn Sumedho says, you know, I really determine to bring awareness, to trust awareness. You know, I know times when there's something, for me, when there's something physically very difficult going on and the mind wants to either go unconscious or find some way to distract or gets lost in a, not lost, but there's a subtle aversion. And the last thing the habituated mind wants to do is say, just really drop into this with total awareness. It's like this now. Although, you know, from a hundred thousand times in my life, the thinking mind knows that the way in is the way of freedom. It knows that. Not freedom from that unpleasant experience. Freedom from the kalesa that's obscuring that quality of ease, of coolness, that isn't bothered just for a moment by whatever it is that's occurring. Like as I was saying this morning, you know, my my body may be afflicted. The mind doesn't need to be afflicted. So as much as we we know that, we recognize it through the steady, non-interfering mindfulness, we still, you know, have to sometimes take a breath and remind ourselves, yes, refuge in awareness. Just because the subtle tendencies of Kalesa are so strong, not because we're somehow hopeless, useless meditators. That's the habit of Kalesa speaking. But we just have to remember to shift the habit. But every moment of steady mindfulness is shifting it. So as we see, more the, um, the drawbacks of the Kalesas is we're less seduced by, by that unrecognized belief that craving is taking us in the way of happiness, that aversion and pushing away is taking us in the way of ease by getting as if we could be separate from this difficult and unpleasant experience. The more we recognize that, the more steady the awareness gets when we're just lying under the tree, being present with what is. As I said, that sense of becoming disenchanted with the ceaseless coming and going of objects, of kalesa. So that's the way that the, the aspect of practice that is understanding how the deluded mind works leads to the abandoning of the craving, the abandoning of the identification. But also inspiring to me is it doesn't have to only be that we just have to endlessly only focus on the kalesa to get rid of them. But also that there's times when the kalesa aren't strong, when there is that peace, we can consciously incline the attention, incline the mind in that direction. There is a, a quotation. I was, I was reading The Island. I like to read, I could read that again and again, that compilation by Ajahn Zamoro and Pasano of all different quotations from the suttas of dealing with um, awakening. All different kinds of quotations, but you get great sutta references. But anyway, 
this particular one where they're talking about just this, that nibida, disenchantment, losing one's taste for is how they describe it. You just lose your taste for it. You know that example of a dog that comes on an old bone and he's all excited and chewing on it, but the bone is so old, there's not one drop of anything in it, no marrow, no nothing, just an old dried up thing. So the dog chews it, ah, there's nothing here, and just goes away. It's not hatred or disgust, it's just, ah, lose one's taste for. So that's from seeing how the kalesas work, seeing the constant coming and going of conditioned experience. We lose the taste for. But as well, and this is something the Buddha said, at other times, when we're not so engrossed in kalesa, a bhikkhu, and a bhikkhu, remember, can mean anyone who's practicing, can reflect thus. It's like inclining the heart, the mind, to the deathless. Not thinking about it, but just think, ah, this is peaceful. This is sublime. That is the stilling of all activities, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, disenchantment, nibbana. Bhikkhu Bodhi notes in his notes that this is a reflective contemplation. But I found it just like a, it's a subtle, um, just not always being so engrossed in the kalesa, in the impurities, in the coming, just kind of in the coming and going, just, ah, that sense of peace, coolness. This is sublime, as Buddha Dasa says, generating a contentment with emptiness. And at first, we don't so much have that contentment. At first, there's a sense of, okay, it's like putting down the bone, but what? You know, we're still a little bit used to wanting things. So you know this, um, this is a very famous, very famous in our little Vipassana Buddhist circles, uh, quotation from Sumedho about, about this. So he says, try to think about knowing the unconditioned, knowing the deathless. Would that be interesting? You might think, I'd like to know God or Dhamma. It's going to be incredibly fascinating. So you look in your meditation for that kind of experience. You think that getting high is getting close. But the unconditioned is as interesting as the space in this room. The space in this room, is it interesting to look at? Not to me. The space in this room is like the space in the other room. The things in this room might be interesting or uninteresting or whatever, good, bad, beautiful, ugly. But the space, what is it? There's nothing you can really say about it. It has no quality except being spacious. So one recognizes space only by not clinging to the objects in the room. So when the clinging stops, when you let go, the absorptions, judgments, criticisms, and evaluations of the beings and the things in the room, when that isn't arising, you begin to experience the space of it. But mostly, we're so involved in the absorptions and the judgments and everything about the beings and the space and the room and the mind, whatever, when there's no grasping and there's just the space within things are arising, that's that place, Adon Samedi was saying, we often don't 
recognize, you know, the mind gets restless, it's too flighty. But here, we do start to notice that. And we can notice it, and we don't just have to stay bored with the space. This is really that, that it really did inspire me, this, this recognizing just that moment of peace, nothing special going on. And you might just, this is a little skillful means, but just, ah, this is, this is sublime. This is peaceful. Not, oh God, I've got something. But just to let it in, that sense of the peace of the coolness that isn't reacting off of anything or creating any sense of me in relation to anything. You don't think all that stuff. But just kind of noticing what that feels like. We get more tuned into the quality, that quality in the heart, in the mind, in the awareness, that kind of, I'm just using words that are all too gross, but kind of like the purity. The, the, a friend of mine described it as feeling like it's squeaky clean. Just squeaky clean, there's nothing there. Just that, that awareness, just with nothing extra. And a lot of times when we have little moments like that on retreat, you know, I would think, and off retreat too, of course, but easier to notice on retreat. And in the past, you know, you remember those. I can remember certain moments that were so, you know. But I would attribute it to the circumstances. That was beautiful weather, and, my, and, you know, I wasn't, I had finally finished worrying about, was I going to get a new job? And this little lizard went by, and it was so lovely, and the people were so nice. And you kind of remember it in the context, but I would tend to give t- um, too much credit to the context, to the conditions, but not recognizing that the, the sense of whether it's happiness peace or freedom or whatever way that your particular mind stream would name it that is just the quality of that purity of heart mind and it's nothing to do with what the conditions are so that can be experienced not so easy but say in the midst of a bad headache just for a moment yeah, it's easy. Okay, it's easier. <laughs> it's easier when it's a beautiful day and you're outside and the peonies smell good and you're not sneezing from pollen. <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe that's what sucks the mind into, isn't this wonderful? But anyway, the, the thing, so the, as the Buddha was saying, the skillful means is just that we can recognize and incline the mind to appreciating this, to the wholesome to the heart and mind that isn't colored or distorted by kalesa. And so one other, I just want to mention one other sutta from the Buddha where he's again giving two ways of working, not working, but giving attention. And this is again now when the mind is pretty steady, as we're talking about now, not lost in gross kalesa. Really that... It can be skillful to brighten the mind heart. So I, I like this because the sutta because <clears throat> it starts with Venerable Ananda taking his robe and bowl and going to a settlement of nuns. And so he's going and meeting with a group of nuns. And Ananda, by the way, in the suttas, he's the kind of friendly, he's the friendly monk that is kind of, we can 
more identify with. You know, he makes mistakes. He's really friendly. He, he is really very supportive of the nuns all through the suttas. So anyway, he's approaching the nuns, talking to the venerable nuns, and, and, um, and they say to him, there are a number of nuns who abide with our minds well established in the four foundations of mindfulness. Their understanding, their wisdom, their freedom is becoming ever greater and more excellent. And he says, so it is, sister, so it is. And so he just, you know, he goes, and then he goes and tells the Buddha about this. So he's basically talking to the Buddha about these nuns, these women who are really well established in the four foundations of mindfulness. It's very steady. Their wisdom is growing. Their compassion is growing. And the Buddha says, yes, very good. And as a monk, as a nun, abides contemplating. And he gives the four foundations. The body is a body. The, the feelings is feelings. Just, just in the simplicity of like, like under the tree, just a body. Just aware of the body, just to the extent necessary to know there is a body. Aware of the feelings to the extent necessary to know there are feelings. So this is this subtle, steady quality of mindfulness. Still... In that time, it can happen that a bodily object or bodily distress arises, or is it one translation says a fever of kalesa might arise in the body, or sluggishness might arise in the mind, and either of those might arise and scatter the mind outward. So just saying, even when the practice is getting much more steady and refined, yeah, hello, this can happen. And he says, so then... The, the bhikkhu could direct their mind to some inspiring sign, some inspiring image. Basically, I say this is to direct the attention to something wholesome. And this is, this is uh, where this sutta is called directed and undirected attention. So the mind gets scattered outward by some fever of kalesa in the body, some sluggishness in the mind. And so he said, this is where we've been saying as a skillful means, refresh the awareness. May just be moving to something neutral, but here, when you know, it's much more refined, it can really consciously tune into the wholesome. So for example, this is sublime. This is, that's, that's been really working for me lately, like a reminder, right, that's so peaceful, just the mind of non-clinging. But it may be when I mentioned aspiration the other day, it may be what your aspiration is. It may be uh, an image or a memory of someone who really inspires you or an insight that you had. I know when, when I'm in Burma, many of the nuns that we visit, sometimes, for many of them, their main meditation practice is Buddha Nupassana, which is reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha over and over and over. Now, for me, that's, that particular quality doesn't inspire me. But being with them when they're doing it, the faith and the brightness that, that that practice brings up in their mind, that faith and brightness then does inspire me. So I can like call up some nuns I know and just get a sense of their faith and brightness, and then that's like a sense of the wholesome, and it, you know, the mind gets collected again. And he's saying, and from this happiness, joy is born. With a joyful mind, the body relaxes. A relaxed body is more content. The mind of one content becomes more collected. 
So the bhikkhu then reflects, the purpose for which I directed my mind has been accomplished. So in other words, the mind is balanced again. So I withdraw attention from that particular wholesome object. And then the, my, I no longer think about that object, no longer pay attention to it. And inwardly mindful, I am content. That's directed meditation, skillful means, even when it's, our, our experience is quite subtle. And what is undirected meditation? Not directing one's mind outward or to any specific thing. One knows, one understands. My mind, my attention is not directed outward not focused on before or after, free, undirected. And one understands, I abide being aware of body as body, ardent, fully aware, mindful. I am content. I just love that. That's really what we're practicing and we say just the steady awareness, just to the extent of knowing what's occurring. And knowing that that's what's happening, I am content. Nothing to want, nothing to get rid of. So we have these two ways, you notice, with the steady awareness practice, sometimes a little more care. You see the calaces are coming, the, they're, they're too strong, so we go, okay, a little more attention, a little more attention. Not knock them away, but a little more taking refuge in awareness. And maybe you need to, to shift the attention to something else. But then, when it's more steady, you don't need to do that anymore. The mind is aware, just whatever's occurring, no before, no after, I am content. This is really our practice. And as Ajahn Sameda says, the practice of freedom is awareness. Just one moment, one moment, one moment. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly a moment before we share the blessings. Let's end our time together by sharing the blessings and making aspiration. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.